You may turn in your Bibles for our first reading to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre in Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house... She found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Our next scripture reading is from Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray. And not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God, nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we confess that our faith is not always as it should be. Our faith is often weak, our prayers are often half hearted mixed with unbelief. And many times we do not persist until we have received the thing that we have asked for. Lord, we do pray that you will grant to us an increase of faith that we may pray acceptably. And we do ask, O Father, that you will grant to us your Holy Spirit that we may know what things to pray for. For, O Lord, we are fully dependent upon you to engage in so great of an exercise rightly. But as you have given many promises and many encouragements, we ask you, O Lord, to grant us a spirit of prayer. For we know that the Holy Spirit prays with groanings that cannot be uttered. He who knows you perfectly, your mind fully, Grant this one to teach us to pray, the one who is fully in tune with your will. Grant him to us that we may know how to pray. And Lord, we confess that we are weak and helpless while we are in this world. We have an adversary who pursues us, the devil. We are powerless against him. But we ask, O God, that you will cause the church to triumph against him. Lord, even as now, 
He will be hard at work to divert the minds of your people from the hearing of the word. He will bring them distractions and many other careless thoughts. He will assault them with temptations and doubts and fears. We ask, O Father, that you will banish him and his demons from our midst, that he may have no power in this assembly. For, O Lord, your word tonight must be heeded. It must be heard. For this is so essential to our well-being as believers, the glorification of your own name, the advancement of your kingdom, and the carrying out of your will in all things. Give us, O Father, freedom from our enemy, that he may not distract us from what you have to say to us. Remember, O Father, the persecuted church throughout all the world, those who are suffering this day because they have gone to worship against the orders of their government, facing the stigma of their cities and towns and families, those who know that this will cost them their jobs, their freedom, their lives, come near to them, O Father. Reward them abundantly and cause them to stand fast. For who else will they go to? For you have the words of eternal life. Father, convert their enemies. Convert their persecutors. Or destroy them. We pray, O Father, that the advances of the devil against the kingdom of light will be thwarted and all of his agents who come against the church that you will throw them down from their positions of authority, from their places of wealth and influence and power, that they may no longer harass the church. Cause your kingdom, O Father, to advance in the world. Lord, as we come, give us ears to hear your word, to hear this, to remember it, and to apply it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. This parable is unique because the text begins with the application. This isn't a parable for unbelievers. In those parables, Christ obscures the message that it may not be understood by everyone. But in this parable, Christ gives the story and the meaning. He wants it to be understood. The lesson is simple. We ought to pray continually, without ceasing, without fainting. If we give up praying, we give up what we request. But if we keep persisting, and if the petition is in line with the will of God, we will Receive it. We will learn this lesson from two characters who are polar opposites of one another. We have a judge as bad as can be, and a woman helpless as can be. We will also explain the surprising twist where the woman prevails with the judge. We will talk about the adversary. And we will apply this parable to our own prayer lives with encouragements. Verses 2 and 3. There was, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, 
Give justice for me from my adversary. Our first character, a wicked judge. This judge is everything a judge should not be. He is a self-idolizing, self-indulgent man, likely a political backscratcher and a bribe collector. He neither feared God nor respected man. In regards to the first table, he does not fear God. In regards to the second table, he does not respect man. He is a complete and willful lawbreaker, and he does not tremble for the judgment that will one day come to him. He is a mercenary for hire. He will let anything go, murder, perjury, thievery, whatever, so long as you are the highest bidder, or you know how to twist his arm. He will have no second thoughts about oppressing the innocent. He will certainly not relieve them if he doesn't have to. He is a wicked judge. Our next character is as helpless as can be. A widow, the most destitute kind of person in the old world. She may have children to care for, but no regular means to do it. She depends on others for everything. She has no connections, and she can't pull strings in society to make things happen. She is not a businesswoman, and she has no financial leverage. She is not an eloquent speaker and cannot talk her way out of trouble. The widow is always exposed to danger. And oppressors love the poor the best. You can twist and manipulate them because they are so desperate. You can rob and cheat them quite easily. And chances are, few, if anybody, will be able to help them. Her situation. This woman is oppressed. She has an adversary. The identity of the adversary is not important, nor is it important what the adversary is doing. Whoever it is, and whatever he is doing, it is urgent that the widow gets protection from him. How urgent? So she will do anything to get that protection. And that is the point of our parable. To make an application just right here, a thorn in the flesh is sometimes a thing that God will use to drive you to prayer. Have you ever been in such a difficult situation, so overwhelmed and so crushed and weighed down that it seems like prayers flowed freely from you in a way that they never have before? If that is the case, that was the point of your trial. That is why God had sent it to you, so that you will look up to him. Who is this widow going to go to? She doesn't have her husband. She doesn't have connections. The adversary knows the widow's plight. The adversary knows what he wants out of her. And the adversary knows he's got nothing to fear. Perhaps the widow can go to the judge. No, absolutely not. The judge will never listen. End of story. He has no compassion and he will run her out. She can barely afford her next meal, let alone the bribe that's actually going to get anything done. Total waste of time to walk into that courtroom. But the widow has one particular weapon. 
shamelessness. Nothing worse can happen to her than has already happened, even public disgrace. What is this widow's attitude? She may be saying to herself, I'm helpless, I'm desperate, nobody pays attention to me anyway, and even if they pick me up and they throw me out of that courtroom, what difference does it make? I'm despised by everyone already. I might as well have what I want while I'm at it. The widow is therefore resolved because she's got nowhere else that she can go. She is going to go to that judge. And she is going to persist and persist and persist until she gets what she is asking for. So why is there any hope that this plot is going to work? Because this judge is a self-indulgent man. He neither fears God nor respects man, which means he lives for himself. He values his ease. The judge doesn't do what's good work. He just does what's convenient and he gets on with it. But that is the judge's Achilles heel, his point of weakness, the chink in his armor. There is no way that a self-indulgent man is going to put up with a widow who makes herself to be a dripping faucet. And so the widow shows up to the courtroom and she has got one simple petition Give me justice against my adversary. Not an impressive request in itself. Not very detailed. People in the Greco-Roman world valued orators, gifted public speakers. A good lawyer was a good speech maker, and a good speech made for a good case. But this lady is no orator, no philosopher, no expert on law and ethics. She only comes in and says, give me justice against my adversary. And let's apply this even right now. It does not matter whether you have all the words that you think best for your own prayers. That's not what God is going for. He's not going for long prayers. He's not going for eloquent prayers. He is going for heartfelt Fervent prayer. That is the kind of prayer that is going to prevail with God. As expected, she gets nowhere. The judge just turns her away thinking she's an irritation, just another day, she'll never be back. And he moves on. And the next day, She does come back. Please, she says, give me justice against my adversary. No, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. And so he sends her out, thinking that has to be the end of it. And the next day, he comes in, and there she is again, and it's the same thing. Please, give me justice against my adversary. And maybe he says, lady, I do not have time for you. Please get out. Do not come back. He's thinking, surely this is the end of it. But then the next day, she comes back, sir, I need justice against my adversary. He says, I have told you already, I do not have time for you. Please get out of my courtroom. But she pleads with him again, I need you. I have a desperate need. Give me justice. And he says, no, no, a million times no. Get out of here. And so he's thinking, she's going to be back. And she comes again. And she goes through this again and again and again. And she is continually wearing upon this judge like a dripping faucet until she gets what she is coming for. Please give me justice against my adversary. 
And there finally comes a point where the judge has to sit down and think to himself. He thinks to himself, this woman is going to be back. She's going to show up in my courtroom again. And she's going to ask the same thing. And there is nothing that I can do to get rid of her. Though I fear not God, nor respect man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Finally, she comes in, and she makes the same request, and he breaks and he says, All right, I will give you what you ask. Just... Please, make me a promise that you will never show up here again and I will give you what you ask. Just leave me alone. And he will take care of the adversary because he really never wants to see her again. So with a few orders and a few papers, the adversary is taken care of. The widow is safe. The judge can move on his life. And as far as he's concerned, everybody is now happy. And then Jesus says in verse 6, Hear what the unjust judge said. What happened? The judge acknowledged with his own lips that he does not fear God nor respect man, but he could be prevailed upon, lest by her continual coming she wear me down. In Greek, wearing down, a word meaning beaten around the eyes, like a boxer who keeps taking it to the face, and his face is turning color from all of the bruising. Even the most immovable of men are ultimately movable by persistence and shameless, persevering importunity. And that is the point of this parable. The point is, much more is God. Verse 6, verse 7. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Here's the logic. This man who gave her her request was a wicked man. But did he not give her fully and completely what she had asked for? He did. Is God a wicked judge? He absolutely is not. God is not only good in character, but is goodness himself. He is the father of all fathers who deeply loves his children and his church. And from the great depths of his own heart, he would never even consider holding back anything that is truly good for his own children. He longs to give us everything. And for what logic Jesus says in Matthew 6, if you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things that ask Him? And if you can get an answer from a wicked judge by persistence and importunity, praying according to the will of God, you will eventually receive the thing that you are asking for. And you persist And you persist, and you persist until God sends you an answer. You pray, and you do not lose heart, as it says in verse 1. 
we can make a great mistake about prayer. We know the doctrine of God, that He is immutable, unchangeable, and His decree is set from eternity, and it will never be altered. Absolutely. However, who God is in essence does not always tell us about how to carry out our duty. A person says, God has his decree, and if I will be saved, I will be saved, respective of what I do or whether I pray. As though a man climbing a ladder by beginning with the top. That is not how prayer works. It's the same with an attitude like this. I only pray that God's decree will be done and I expect nothing else. That might be a theologically safe statement. But is it how the Bible speaks about prayer? Is that the kind of prayer that you see God honoring in his work? We will give two biblical witnesses to show us how to think about prayer in relation to God. But let me lay out the point immediately in front of you. God expects you to pray from an entirely different angle as though you can, as though you can change his mind. As though the immovable one can be moved. Because the answer of Scripture is that prayer really does make all the difference. We will give two witnesses. Jacob and Moses. I won't ask you to turn to the passages, but first, Jacob. Jacob knew that God is sovereign, yet when Esau is coming, Jacob is filled with fear, and he is desperate for a blessing. And so the Lord comes in the form of a stranger. And it almost seems like this stranger is not going to give Jacob the time of day. As though he intends to just move on with the rest of his business and leave Jacob to his own troubles. But Jacob, he is utterly persistent and he wrestles with him for hours and hours. And he says, I will not let you go until you Bless me. And what is the outcome? This omnipotent, unchanging God who has his decree. He says to him, Your name shall be Israel. You have struggled with God and men and have prevailed. Deliver me from my adversary, Jacob prayed. And he was delivered from his adversary. Our second biblical witness to prayer, Exodus 32. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, Now therefore you let me alone, that my fury may burn against them, and that I may consume them. And Moses, I will make of you a great nation. And Moses sought the Lord as God, and he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. And you said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, 
And all this land that I have spoken will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Don't try to explain away that language. Let the message be loud and clear. This is how you ought to pray. As though you will shift around his decrees because of your persistence. Be like that Syrophoenician woman. She pursues Christ. He meets her with silence. The disciples try to turn her away. And she persists and she persists. And because of her faith, she prevails with her Savior. And she obtains her deliverance. As Jesus Christ says, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now someone may say, that's great and wonderful, but you are talking about Jacob and Moses. I'm me. I'm not a father in a covenant. I'm not a prophet. I'm not any great person. Why should God promise that kind? Why should I expect that kind of efficaciousness to my own prayers? Because Scripture tells you to expect it. James 5.16. Can we think of another man in the Bible known for effective, fervent prayers? Elijah. Elijah the prophet. The effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. You will say, but that's Elijah, another great prophet. Yes, but who is James encouraging? Not a school of prophets or preachers or seminary students, but the regular members of the church. Were this letter read aloud, you would understand it to be addressed to all of you in this room right now. Elijah is your example. Elijah has three things. He was righteous, he was a man of fervent prayer, and had a nature like ours. And don't you have the same three things? You are righteous in Christ, and if you are fervent in prayer, that's one thing, and you have a nature just like his. You have everything you need to expect answers to prayer just as Elijah did. So James is teaching he was weak like you or me, but he was righteous, he prayed fervently, and the Lord heard, and so it is with you. If you would pray that the Lord stops the rains and the Lord deems it good, he would do it. Two witnesses from recent church history on the efficaciousness of prayer. Jonathan Edwards once tackled the question, suppose you have this dear old, wit dear old widow and she is in her prayer closet and she is praying. Does she have any reason to think that her prayers could amount to anything more than just a ripple in the whole scheme of God's working? And Edwards' answer is yes. By that woman's solitary prayers, in her closet, the Lord may actually change the course of history. Alexander Cummings, in his lecture on prayer and revival, 
I have an extended quote, which I will read to you and let it speak for itself. Moses alone stood in the breach to arrest the tide of indignation that was about to roll over Israel. Daniel's aspirations, his prayers, turned the captivity of Israel. And God said at a time when Israel was rushing headlong with headlong precipitation into a gulf of idolatry and immorality, he says, those, these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the city. They should deliver but their own souls. Implying that in the cases of ordinary turpitude, that is, turmoil and distress, they would have otherwise saved a whole nation. If, therefore, our souls are impregnated with a principle of saving faith, we may, in the retirement of our chamber, achieve victories that will tell on the destinies of the nation. The fervent, effectual prayers of a righteous man or a righteous woman avail much. The adversary. Who is the adversary? We have many adversaries as Christians, don't we? But we all know that we have one for sure, the devil. He goes around as a lion stalking out his prey, waiting for the ambush. Sometimes roaring loudly and seeking to terrify the church. He is the oppressor. And all oppression and adversity that has ever come in all of history has come through him. And what are many of our prayers? Many of our prayers, when you analyze them, are simply trying to undo all the damage that Satan has done to yourselves and to the church, to family, to your nation and the world. Why do we pray, Hallowed be thy name? Because the devil has come, blinded the eyes of the world, and has obscured the glory of God. Why do we pray, Thy kingdom come? Because the devil has set up his own kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of light. And our prayers are all about beating back the kingdom of darkness and seeking the overthrow of Satan. Why do we pray, Thy will be done? Because our former father, the devil, has so long done his own will in our lives that we are in need of great grace to do the Lord's will. And the Lord's will is so little being done in the world. How do we combat this adversary in our prayers? Pray for conversions. Pray for lost souls. Remember the thief on the cross. What what better way before the return of Christ to conquer the devil than to see his own trophies snatched from his grasp? What else can you pray for the persecuted church? Those whose blood the devil tries to spill. Through their blood, the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. And so by his combat against the church, he is truly on a suicide mission against himself. Pray against him in those nations. Pray against persecutions against wicked tyrants who are his puppets. Pray that the Lord will deliver your brothers and sisters from those wretched persecutions. The ultimate prayer 
for God to avenge us against our adversary is to pray for the return of Jesus Christ. Thy kingdom come, what is the ultimate consummation of this prayer? When the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes on that final day with a sound of the trumpet blast, with all of his ten thousands upon ten thousands of saints, with all of his holy angels, to take all of his people to be up with him, to be caught in the air for the resurrection unto life of all the saints who have gone past, the day when your brothers and sisters in the graves on this side of the building will rise again to their new glorified states. And then for Satan, your oppressor, the one who has tormented you and your families to be cast down into hell with all of his angels and with all of his subjects and a seal put over his head never to be opened again. And so begins the full consummation of the kingdom of glory. That is the ultimate prayer for God to avenge you against your adversary. Pray, pray for the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 and 8, though he bears long with them, I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. There comes an objection here. The passage says that they cry day and night, which means that they pray for days or weeks or months, maybe years or decades. But it also says he will address them speedily. These seem to contradict one another. How do I reconcile these? How do I believe both at the same time? I think the answer is simply this. Once the prayer is offered in faith, the wheels of providence begin turning for the answer of that prayer. It does not mean you will see the result right away. But then and there, once you begin praying... Providence, in some secret fashion, is already operating for the consummation of that prayer. Our proof, Daniel 10. Daniel prays, it is still the time of the Babylonian captivity. And Daniel longs to see the return to the covenanted land. And so he prays a long prayer of confession to the Lord for the sins of Israel. And then he is visited and told by the angel Gabriel, O oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. And could it be that as it says, God bears long with his people, that there are answers to your petitions far beyond your immediate requests that God wants to give. And sometimes in keeping with the greatness of the thing that you are asking God for, he may indeed have you pray longer. Sermon Audio is now conducting a, a regular prayer meeting. It is inching near 600 days in duration of meeting every day by phone for prayer. Bless God for it. Indeed, such prayer meetings God may have to go on even longer. But if they persist, they are going to receive the thing that they are asking for. Verse 8, a very great caveat. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he? What's the answer to this question? Calvin says the implied answer is no, he will not. Calvin takes the view that Christ means this, and this is my own view. Christ will be slow to return because so few are praying for it. Thus, the dearth of vengeance falls upon us as believers. As James says, you have not because you ask not. Sometimes, you know, sometimes God will have you wait for the answer to prayer, but sometimes the reason that you are not seeing an answer to your prayer is because you're not praying. Or you're half-hearted, or you don't really believe that God is capable of doing what he says that he is capable of doing. I speak that from experience. I know my own heart. I say that to myself. I need more faith. I need more perseverance. And I am to blame when I do not see certain petitions answered. The Lord help us. The Lord grant us faith to pray and to persevere. Yet nonetheless, if we will pray for this thing, we are going to receive it. And when will we receive it? Certainly, we may still see God do very great and mighty things in the earth before He comes. And if God does not take a severe vengeance in this life, one thing is absolutely sure. Christ is coming again, and He is going to avenge His church. And He is going to send our adversary, oppressor, and tormentor into the eternal hellfire to be there forever. We will receive our vengeance. Now we pray for it. Further applications. To help you pray acceptably. Take seriously that in order to pray, Frame your heart to know and understand that God may indeed have you pray long before you receive the answer to your prayer. Sometimes God in his mercy may bring the answer the very same day. But other times, he will not. And so ask yourself, is what you are praying for worth praying long And persisting until you get it. If it is not, then stop praying for it. Or maybe a few times would then be done with it. But if if it is for things like grace, victory over sin, the return of Christ, the advancement of the gospel, things that we are instructed to pray for, then you are to pray until you get them. But you must get it in your hearts that you may pray a long time. Roe v. Wade, how long have some of you prayed? Decades. Perhaps never thinking that the day would come. And yet it's come. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Now bless God for it. There's still much work to do. It is not time to stop praying for the complete overturn of abortion in the United States, but this has been a major milestone, and there has been constant, continuous prayer in the pulpit and out of it. But it did come. Come helpless in yourself, but confident in God. Helpless and powerless like this widow having nothing in herself understanding take this illustration from Samson while he had the Holy Spirit he was strong carrying gates on his back 
tearing lions to pieces. But when the Holy Spirit had left him, he was like any other man. So take seriously for yourself that you must have the power of the Holy Spirit to pray. And you need Him to teach you to pray. And you need to seek Him until you have Him. Otherwise, you will be like any other man. These petitions that we are called to pray for concern grace and the kingdom of God. No man can affect these by his own efforts, but God must affect them. Therefore, pray for the Holy Spirit. And as you come helpless and powerless, be confident of this, that the power of God is made perfect in your weakness. As I've elaborated on with just a few more thoughts on it, pray especially against your adversary, the devil. We do not give the devil sufficient attention as we ought to. We think of the world and we think of our flesh, but we need to realize that we have an adversary who goes around like a lion seeking who he may devour. You got plenty of help for your sins from your flesh and the world, but he is there and he is after you. And so therefore, you pray against him. We as believers, think upon what Christ had said to Peter. You are Simon Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Christian life is not a life lived in the trenches, just trying to hold your ground. The Christian life is a life of direct assault on the kingdom of darkness. You do not wait for him to come at you. You go against him in your prayers and by the word and you conquer. Pray believingly. Take the example of this Syrophoenician woman. It seemed as though Christ was going to push her off. But she was also thinking, who else am I going to go to? He is the only one who can help my daughter. But you also know that God is a good father. And he is more than ready to give you all the world. If it is truly what is good for you. As he has said to David, I had given you a kingdom. I have given you many things. And if it was not enough, I would have given more. We, brothers and sisters, are destined to reign with Christ, with Him in eternity. Therefore, pray that God cares about your petitions, and He wants you to come to Him, and He wants to hear them. I want my children to come to me if they are truly in need of something, and I want to help them. And so, your Father with you. And then pray until you receive an answer. Sometimes when it comes to a petition that's lawful, but may not necessarily be the will of God, there may actually come a time to stop asking for it. But if it is with the line, in line with the will of God, keep going and going and going. I want to give you an account for your encouragement, because, brothers and sisters, the reality it is difficult to pray like this. And especially when we realize this is what Christ calls us to, but we have not prayed as we ought to pray. It's flesh-withering to think about. I feel it in myself. But for our own encouragement. There was centuries ago a young man from Tunisia, North Africa, by the name of Augustine. His mother was a devout Christian. His father was not. Augustine was ambitious, a lover of worldly philosophy and given to sexual immorality. And Monica was desperate for the conversion of her son, and she prayed ceaselessly for him. Augustine 
writes, My mother, your faithful Lord, wept to you for me more than mothers weep for bodily deaths of their children. For she, by that faith and spirit, which she had from you discerned the death, the spiritual death wherein I lay, and you heard her, O Lord, and did not despise her tears. When streaming down, they watered the ground in every place where she prayed. She had pleaded with the Lord that Augustine would not go to Italy. Were there any place where Augustine could have his idealized worldly life? It was there. Augustine one day told her a lie to cover up his journey to Italy. It could seem as though nothing in all the world was more contrary to the answer of her prayer than this. Her discovery that Augustine had gone to Italy left her frantic with weeping and groaning. So she chased him to Italy. She caught a boat and she went after him. There she met Bishop Ambrose, with whom Augustine had made acquaintance. She spoke to the bishop, pressing him to have a word with Augustine. And in Augustine's words, she pressed more upon him with what entreating and with what weeping that he would be pleased to see me and to talk with me. And Ambrose said to her, Go your way, and God bless you. It is not possible that the son of such tears should be lost. Which answer she took as if an oracle sounded from heaven. The Lord began to show Augustine the wickedness of his unchastity. He got by himself in a garden, and he prayed, and he wept bitterly. Because he was held so tightly by his lust and he could not let it go. As though it was saying to him, are you really going to send me away? And it seemed as though he heard a voice calling, pick up and read. Pick up and read like the voice of a small child. He grabbed his copy of the book of Romans, flipped it open, and he read... Not in rioting and drunkenness. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make not provision for the flesh. To fulfill the lust thereof. No further would I read. Nor needed I. For instantly, even with the end of this sentence, by a light, as it were, of confidence now darted into my heart, all the darkness of doubting vanished away. He goes into the house where his mother is and tells of what happened. And as Augustine says, she leaps for joy and triumphs and blesses you who are able to do above that which we think or ask. For that she perceived you have given so much more concerning me than she was wont to by her pitiful and most doleful groanings. You did not regard what she then asked in order that you might make me what she had always asked. I saw it recently. A family member got caught up in liberalism and higher criticism. There was lots of prayers going up for him, especially from his dear mother. Listening to a sermon on church discipline, he realized, if these things are not real, why do I feel this torment in myself? And he came back to the faith, and he repented. And I think so much of it had to do with his dear mother's tears and his prayers for him. Persist, brothers and sisters. Persist. It seems hopeless, maybe right now, like Christ is turning you away and giving you a solid no to these prayers. But keep on. Persist 
and persist and do not lose heart. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to each of us this evening. Let us pray. Our Father, blessed be you for all of your goodness. You are so excellent and so generous and so gracious. Father, hear the many prayers of brothers and sisters, even now, as they have remembered prayers long prayed, as they have remembered family members and friends and colleagues. Hear their prayers as they think upon torments and doubts and anxieties and oppressions. Hear the prayers of your people. And Lord, as we pray, we ask for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, many things may still need to happen, but we pray, O Lord, haste the day. Let him come soon. Bring us soon, O Father, that we may go and be with our Savior forever with glorified souls and glorified bodies and be forever with you. Avenge us, O Father, against our enemy, the devil. Throw him down to hell, O Father. Make him tremble even this very day for the terrible doom that is coming upon him and all of his unholy angels. Avenge your elect speedily, as you have promised to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.